You're listening to the Lord's Prayer Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we learn how prayer brings peace and power into the daily parts of our lives. We'll explore this through the most famous prayer in Scripture, the words that Jesus gave us in the Lord's Prayer. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. If you're visiting with us, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you for joining us. As Pastor Brian just mentioned, we're in the middle of a four-week series looking at the Lord's Prayer. And two weeks ago, we talked about the opening petition of the Lord's Prayer, the opening address, sorry, where we learn who it is that we're praying to. Jesus teaches us that in prayer, we're going to our God, who's also our Father. He's in heaven. So he's good and he's powerful. And then last week, we looked at the three your requests, which comprise pretty much the first half of the Lord's Prayer. And each of those requests are tied together by the word your, and hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And what we talked about last week, and this is really critical in setting up this week, is that those three requests aren't three separate requests. They're really slightly nuanced versions of the same request. And Jesus is telling us when we come to God in prayer, the top priority is praying for him to come through on his promise to bring heaven to earth, to heal our world, to make all things new, to complete his work of redemption. It's a big prayer. It's the biggest prayer that we can pray, the biggest prayer we're given. And then today, we're looking at the second half of the prayer, which focuses more on needs that we have as we wait for that day. And the shift is pretty jarring because Jesus is saying, verse 3, God, fulfill your, co- your plan for the cosmos, for our world, your plan of redemption, heal all things, make everything new. And then the very next prayer is, and give us bread today and forgiveness and lead us and protect us and deliver us. The connection's really important as we think about the Lord's Prayer and as it serves for a template for all of our prayers. And so today we're going to look at the first two of those, the prayer for bread and the prayer for forgiveness. And before we jump in, we pray with me that God's Spirit would move mightily in our midst as we open his word. Father, we thank you that you are so good to us. And that your goodness endures no matter what. Lord, we acknowledge that there are many people here who aren't feeling your goodness, whether because of suffering, tragedy, hardship, struggles with depression, with anxiety, with the worries of today and tomorrow. Lord, we come in weighed down by so many things, so many things on our mind. And I pray as we come to your word this morning that you, by your spirit, you will grant us hearts that are able to receive the truth that your word contains, but also the great hope and encouragement and strength that it gives us. Lord, we love you and we trust that you'll provide. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Looking at these two together, um, we're going to tackle it like this. We're going to, three points as we consider these requests. The first, I want to talk about the comfort that they offer. The second, I want to talk about the challenge that these two requests present to us. And then lastly, I want to talk about the call that they put before us and they put on our life. But starting with the comfort, 
I find it fascinating that of all the things that Jesus could have taught us to pray for in regards to ourselves, the very first thing is for bread. Not even forgiveness. I mean, it's second. It's very important. But the very first thing Jesus teaches us to pray for is bread. And I think this is really comforting and it's really encouraging because in teaching us to pray for bread, Jesus is teaching us that God, he doesn't just care about our souls, he also cares about our bodies. And I've seen this mindset in the church off and on throughout my Christian walk that oftentimes Christians, we tend to pit the soul against the body or the material against the immaterial. And we say the spiritual's good, the body's kind of bad, or it's a necessary evil that we have to put up with. But that's not nearly as important as the spiritual, and Jesus will have none of that. Jesus will have absolutely none of that. Our bodies are not a careless afterthought in God's scheme of creation. Our physical bodies were actually the crowning work of creation. When God created Adam and Eve, and he created us as embodied beings with digestive systems. I mean, think about that. That's how he designed us. If we don't eat, we die. And I think that's why he puts this first. He wants to teach us how to pray. If we don't eat, we don't pray. And if we don't eat long enough, we die. And that's by design. God created us to be a people who needed certain things. We need food. We need water. We need shelter. We need clothing. We need sleep. That was all part of the design at the very beginning, even before the fall. So in teaching us to pray for our daily bread, Jesus is teaching us that all of these things matter to God. God created this physical world, and God has promised to redeem us in our physicality. And so what this means for our prayers, what this should encourage you with prayer, is that there's no need too small, too earthly, or too earthy to bring to him. He cares. He cares about our basic needs. And because he's our father, he doesn't just care, he provides. And he doesn't just provide, God delights to provide for his children. And so one of the implications that, that J.I. Packer draws out of this prayer request is saying that God, he delights to provide for us and to give us gifts. And so one of our responsibilities as Christians is to delight in the gifts that he's given us. I mean, God, he created us in such a way that we not only need bread, but he also made bread taste wonderful. Amen? I mean, I haven't eaten much bread in the last couple of years, and every time I eat it, I think, this is wonderful. I think I'm sinning by not eating it. Jesus told us to pray our daily bread. God could have made everything taste the same. He could have made everything taste like overcooked chicken breast or tofu, but he didn't. I'm being dead serious here. Like, he didn't. He made millions of flavors. He made cows out of steak and pigs out of bacon and fish out of sushi. He gave us walnuts and coffee beans from all over the world that taste different. He gave us chicken pad thai and buttery mashed potatoes, Earl Grey tea, Munster cheese, you name it. Not only did he give us this great variety of bread, of food, he gave us thousands of taste buds that enable us to enjoy the many different flavors of this earth. And so when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, the comfort is today matters. Our bodies 
matter. We can delight in the material things that God provides for us. And so if you were raised in a tradition or a home where material things you know, were very much diminished and that doesn't matter, all that matters is your soul, trust Jesus, take him at his word when he says, no, bread matters too, and your body matters. That's the encouragement of the first one and teaches us our bodies matter to God. The second teaches that our souls matter to God as well and our spirit, our, what's going on inside of us matters. When Jesus says, forgive us our debts, debt is an old way of talking about sin. And it might not seem like this is comforting, but this is profoundly comforting for us as Christians that Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our sins. See, one of the more challenging aspects of the Christian life is learning how to hold two conflicting truths together at the same time. On the one hand, as Christians, the Bible makes it clear that we are saints, that we've been adopted into God's family, that we are daughters and sons of the king, that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we have peace with God. It's ours. But then on the other hand, we also know that we still sin and that we do a lot of things that we don't want to do. Some of them we want to do that dishonor God, disobey his word, hurt other people. And one of the real challenges of the Christian life is, is holding both of those truths together at the same time and not falling into one ditch or the other. It's, it's living with that internal war and struggle that goes on often in all of us. And often that, that struggle between spirit and flesh, the flesh wins. And the question becomes, what do we do with the weight, the burden, the guilt, the shame that comes when we feel weighed down by our sins? Jesus says, here's what you do. You pray. You confess them. You ask for forgiveness. And some people get tripped up here. Does God only forgive us of the sins we confess? I hope not, or else we're all doomed. Because we all sin in many ways, many of which we don't even, we're not even aware that we're sinning. Jesus isn't giving us this prayer to, to tell us, if you don't pray for forgiveness, you won't get it. He's doing this for our good. I'm convinced. The reason Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our sins, is he never wants us to forget our grace or his grace or our place in his story. Jesus doesn't want us to live weighed down by guilt and shame. He doesn't want us to succumb to what I call miserable sinner Christianity, that we're all just really miserable sinners, and we think that that's Christian maturity. He wants us to be a people who are continually, day by day, moment by moment, remembering that we are loved by God, that we have peace with God, and that that was secured fully and finally by Jesus on the cross for us. And so we pray this prayer to remember our story, we pray this prayer as we do. I think it grows us in our relationship with the Father experientially. Very few things have the power to strengthen and deepen a relationship like saying I was wrong. I'm sorry. Forgive me. But I also think as we pray this prayer, we, we make progress in our battle against sin. Sin, it's like black mold. It grows well in the dark. But sin that's named that's brought to the light, it loses so much of its power. And Jesus is telling us we don't have to keep it to ourselves. God knows. We can bring it. Forgive us our sins, knowing that he will. 
These are profoundly comforting things that Jesus teaches us. Before we move on, I just wonder, I wonder how this shapes, how this could shape your prayer life, your own prayers. I wonder what needs you keep to yourself you don't bring to God because you feel like they're too small or too worldly. I wonder what sins you keep to yourself that you haven't named that really are wreaking havoc in your life and your relationships. I wonder what sins you need to name before the Father so that you might name it, be reminded of the peace you have, and you might walk in the power of the Spirit and finding victory over it. When Jesus gave these petitions, they, he gave them, and they should comfort us profoundly, but they also will challenge us. That's my second point. They're comforting, but they're challenging. And the reason they're challenging is because, as one author said, Jesus doesn't teach us to pray for our daily cake. He teaches us to pray for our daily bread. The reason these are challenging is because they speak to our every need, physical and spiritual. They don't speak to our every want. And the reason we're in this prayer is we're entering a year of prayer saying, Lord, we want to grow as a people of prayer. And in the model, the template Jesus gives he doesn't teach us to pray for our wants. And we can, we'll talk about that more in a few minutes. Instead, he teaches us to pray for our needs. And that's challenging. I mean, what's really challenging with these two requests is they, they force us to remember things that we often want to forget, two things that we often want to forget. I mean, we live in a society that celebrates narcissism and being a self-made man or a woman and grandiosity. People are famous just for the sake of being famous. We, we celebrate youth. We celebrate all sorts of things. These two requests, Jesus is reminding us that we're creatures and that we're actually really weak and needy. If we don't have bread, we don't survive very long and that we're sinners, and that one of our greatest needs is the forgiveness and grace of God. These are truths that we try to run from, and Jesus is telling us, no, we need to pray these daily and ground ourselves in these realities. And that's hard. What makes this even harder, especially with the first request, is that we live in a culture of affluence. When was the last time you prayed for bread? I mean, really prayed for bread. Maybe at a restaurant when you're waiting for the waiter to take your order, and you're really hungry, like, I'm starving. I need bread right now. Hey, we don't pray for bread, typically, because most of us have loaves of bread in our cabinets. We don't even think about it. We take it for granted. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not bad that we have loads of bread. But that's a fairly new and rare phenomenon throughout human history. For most of human history, most people, and even for many people in our day, when they pray for daily bread, they're actually praying for daily bread. They're praying that they would have enough food to provide for themselves and their children. We don't tend to pray like that. We don't know most of us, not all, most of us, we don't know that level of need. Growing up, I remember my grandparents they had plenty of money. My grandfather was an engineer for GE, made uh, aircraft engines. They had plenty of money, but I'll never forget being at their house one morning and watching them cut off a piece 
of moldy bread and then using the rest of that slice of bread for toast, putting it in the toaster. It's crazy. They would actually reuse coffee grinds. And so they would make one pot and then they would use it again and make another pot, which is a mortal sin, especially here in Louisville for us. But for them, no, we can, we can pull another good, good pot out of this. It won't be as good as the first one, but it'll be fine. Like they knew need. They knew what it was to want. They grew up in the depression. We don't really know that kind of need. I mean, we, we have bread, cookies, and pretzels in the pantry and ribeyes in our freezer next to the gelato, right? Like we, we have an abundance and I think our abundance actually makes this request more important for us. I think it teaches us something that we easily forget that most people never forgot, but we will forget. See, when Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily bread, literally he teaches us to pray for bread to today, he's hearkening back to the Israelites as they were, after the Exodus, after they were set free from their slavery in Egypt, they were making this way through the wilderness to the land of promise. Now, it should have only taken a couple of weeks to get from Egypt to the Promised Land, but they had some of their own issues going on, and so God kept them there for 40 years, wandering in the wilderness. And in that time, it was almost like a boot camp where God is training the Israelites. You are going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. And I want to train you and teach you to depend and trust on me. Well, a desert is obviously a barren place. There's no food. And so the Israelites, well, what are we going to eat? We're starving. They start longing for being back in slavery. At least then we used to have food. And God responds to their need. How? By giving them daily bread. By giving them manna. This honey wafers that, that came down from heaven every morning. And I, I imagine it tasted amazing and you could put it together, and you could actually bake cakes with it. Another thing, manna was amazing. The only problem with manna was that it was extremely perishable. Like it had an 18-hour shelf life or so. And so you could collect it every morning, and you could feast on it. You're taken care of. You're celebrating. But any that you had left over would go rancid overnight. And so every day, people had to get up, go collect more. Every day. Now, I don't fully know the mind of God, but I imagine what God is doing here. He could have made manna last for, you know, filled it with preservatives and made it last for six months or two years. I think God was trying to train and teach the Israelites, remind them of who they are and the story they belong to and who he is and their utter dependence on them. So every day, they would collect it. And Jesus, in giving us this request for daily bread, Jesus is doing the same thing for us. He's trying to train us because we too, in many ways, our stories aren't that all, all that different. We've been set free from our slavery to sin. We are wandering through the wilderness of this life and we are headed towards the land filled with all of God's promises. But we're in this in-between space just like the Israelites were. And Jesus knows that there are all kinds of stories out there that are vying for our allegiance and he wants us to be grounded in his story, the true story. That who we are, where we are, and all that we have, we have because of who he is, because of God. That's a hard one for us. It's a hard one for us in our affluence, and it's a hard one for us as Americans. I mean, one of the stories that 
most of us have been sold since we were young is you're the master of your fate. You're the captain of your soul. That what you have, you have because you worked hard. You earned it. What you have, you have because you deserve it. I mean, country music in the 90s and early 2000s, this is what it was all about. If anyone know country, Aaron Tippin, like I got it honest. No one, few of you. Okay, you go listen to the songs. Every single one of them is like, you know, I might be broke, but what I have is mine. Like I earned it. And that, that's not entirely wrong. And the Bible says if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. It's not wrong to encourage people to work hard. There's good things that come out of it. But at best, that mentality, it's a half-truth. And as J.I. Packer says, a half-truth that masquerades as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. Because the deeper reality, yeah, we might have worked hard, but the deeper reality is that everything that we have in this life is a gift. Every piece of bread we have is a gift. Well, I worked hard. Your body is a gift. Your upbringing is a gift. Your intellect, your ingenuity, the opportunities. I mean, think of the opportunities that we have, every single one of us. Most people throughout history would have killed to have half the opportunity we have. Now, it's right that we step into it and we work hard, It's wrong when we start believing this lie that everything we have, we have because we earned. Everything we have, we have because God is gracious. Everything is a gift. It's really hard to believe that and to stay grounded in that when you live with such affluence. There's this interesting passage in Deuteronomy 31. God tells Moses what's going to happen after they get out of the wilderness and into the promised land. He says this, For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. He says once they get all of their needs met every single day and they're they're living in affluence, it's going to lead to this presumptive nature where they forget who I am, they forget how I've provided for them, and they'll worship other gods. I read that, and I don't think Jesus wants us to feel guilty about our affluence. I really don't. I think in some ways, like if we can't celebrate the gifts that God's given us, it's actually an act of ingratitude. So I don't think we need to feel guilty about our affluence. I do think we need to be very wary of it. And I do think we need to see that having so much shapes us in profound ways, in ways that we don't even notice. And that's why it's so important that we pray these prayers. They, they remind us that we're needy, fallen creatures in the end, that we're all made of dust, and we're wholly dependent upon the goodness and grace of God. The challenge of these requests is they lead us into further dependence upon God. We depend on him for bread, and we depend on him for forgiveness. And this is where this gets really challenging, and I think this this gets to the heart of many of our struggles with prayer. I think a lot of us, we're not praying. If If you looked at our prayers, you wouldn't get a sense that we're praying that God would deepen our dependence in him. 
and on him. I think if we were (laughs) to look at all of our prayers, we would see that actually, usually we're praying that God would lead us to a further independence from him. If you were to, if God were to answer all the prayers you've had from the last year, what would happen? What would you have that you don't have? More money, probably. More stuff. Another question, would it lead you to depend on him more, to to need more of his grace and his provision, more of him? Or to need you to like functionally need less of him day in and day out. You see, Jesus, in this prayer, he's saying this is how you should pray. And what we're doing in prayer is we're acknowledging that we're creatures, that God's the creator, and we're utterly dependent upon him. And so if the majority of our prayers are us asking God to give us all sorts of things that will make us trust in him less, we shouldn't be surprised if he doesn't answer them. We should actually receive it as a grace because God's goal for us is that we might know him more, depend on him more, and trust more in his provision. And I know that that leads us to ask the question, does that mean I can't pray for my wants? Does that mean you can't pray for that sweet house you really want to live in or that car or whatever it is? I don't know. I guess you can. Lamentations 2.19 says, pour out your heart like water. I say, pray what you got. If that's all you can pray for, it's better that you pray it than you don't. But I'll also say, when Jesus, when the disciples were like, we don't know how to pray. Jesus, teach us how to pray. He said, all right, pray for bread. Pray for forgiveness. Pray for protection. And pray for deliverance. On the pecking order of priority, those were way up here. He didn't say anything about praying for cake. One of my favorite Proverbs, probably one of the most, one of the wisest and most timely for us is in Proverbs 30. It's actually a prayer. It says, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God takes wisdom to pray that prayer. I think most of us are like, give me riches, not poverty. I am mature enough and strong enough. I will utilize it in ways that honor you and me. It'll be a good partnership. Wisdom knows we're not as strong as we think we are. Wisdom knows that affluence and abundance can easily lead to a place of presumption. And so I don't know, you can pray for whatever you want. But I wonder what it would look like if we as a people grew more in praying this prayer. Give me my daily bread. As we do that, our trust in God deepens. And as we do that, I think what happens is we really start to recognize that everything truly is a gift. You know, I heard, I was reading in a book about spiritual growth and one of the marks of spiritual maturity they call second naivete. And what they mean is in life, you have a first naivete when you're a kid and like everything's awesome. You know, and you, you're trusting and you love everything and everything's awesome. And then sometime between the age of 10 and 40, depending on your life story, you get burned. Like everything's not awesome anymore. 
And what that does is it, you kind of become cynical towards life. You learn to not trust everything. But oftentimes that cynicism leads you into a dark place where you don't really trust anyone or anything. And that cynicism, I think that's part of what feeds our, no, it's mine. I earned it. I don't have to share with anyone. But they talk about this second naivete that comes about. And it doesn't come about in a lot of Christians' lives. They never actually get to this place. But for some, they get to a place where they recognize everything, everything I have is a gift. I mean, we started this morning singing about the goodness of God. Like everything I have comes because he is so good. And when everything is a gift, it actually enables you to kind of hit the second naivete where, where you're able to celebrate whatever you have. People who have reached this level are the people who go to Subway and praise the sandwich, right? They're like, sorry if you love Subway, but they're like, this, this is amazing, this bread. It tastes wonderful. The rest of us are like, that's not nearly as good as the bread here. This, but they receive it as a gift. They'll eat a salad and be like, this salad's amazing. Have you ever known a Christian like that? They're usually older. They've usually been put through the ringer in life, but they get to the place where they recognize it's all a gift. And it's there when you live from a place of gratitude that you can really step into the call that these two requests put before us. I would say it's only when you recognize that everything is a gift that you're able to step into the two calls that are embedded in these two commands. That's my last point, the call. What I mean is, if you'll notice, Jesus doesn't teach us to pray, give me my daily bread. And Jesus doesn't teach us to pray, forgive me my sins. I think that's how we all read it, because we're Americans. Like we're self-made people. I think most of us, when we pray, give us our daily bread, meet, meet our needs, we're really praying, meet my needs. And Jesus, he was perfectly capable of saying my like he knew that word. But when he taught us to pray, he taught us to pray for us and for our. And so when we go to him, presenting our needs to him, he doesn't just want us praying for our needs, but praying for the needs of others. And I would imagine that as we do this, as we're praying, not just for our needs, but, but for our needs together, our minds are going to be drawn to people who, who are in need and who actually have less than us. And if we have more, it's probably going to stir some things in us. Like if you have all kinds of bread, and you know people who don't have bread, brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling to eat, and you're praying, give us our bread. Like I think it's going to do something like, hey, I actually have bread, and they don't have bread, and I could actually give them some of my bread. I could share. And that's not socialism or communism. That's the kingdom life. It's what we see in the New Testament, right? The disciples, Jesus, we don't know how to pray. He gives them this prayer. He does a whole bunch of other things too, to be clear. But they pray this for years. And then in the book of Acts, what do we see them doing? It's like they're taking all of their stuff and they're sharing it with anyone else and the family of God who are in need. None of them said, it's mine, you can't touch it. They just looked and they said, who's in need? All right, I'll share. 
One author put it like this. He said, can you imagine how different the world would be if we prayed the us with greater integrity? One of the scandals of our time is the huge disparity in basic life provisions in the body of Christ. Many disciples of Jesus have more than we can possibly use, and we worry about how to protect it. Many more disciples of Jesus wonder how to take care of the minimal needs of their family, and yet ironically seek to share what little they have. A Latin American prayer put it this way, O God, to those who have hunger, give bread, and to those who have bread, give the hunger for justice. To pray, give us, leads us into solidarity with the whole family of God. I mean, that's hard. It's hard. And the only way that we will actually pray that and then live that is when we recognize it's all a gift. Because when it's all a gift, you can't say it's mine, I earned it, nobody's touching it. When you recognize it's all a gift, it leads you into a further and a deeper generosity. You stop talking about what's your rights and what are your rights and what you've earned, and you start looking for need. Now, that's hard and that's challenging. It gets even more challenging with the next one. When Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts, verse 12, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Not as we, we hope to forgive. It's past tense. As we also have. So there's a really clear implication, call there. And just in case we somehow miss what Jesus is saying, he then says, he, he at, attaches a writer to the very end of the prayer. After giving, like, you want to know how to pray? Here's how you pray. And then at the very end, just in case you missed it, he says, for if you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's not me, it's Jesus. And I've looked for loopholes, but it sure seems like Jesus is saying that as his disciples, forgiveness is not optional. And it's, forgiveness is easy when you love the person and it was a dumb mistake. Forgiveness becomes a lot harder when someone really hurts you. They take advantage of you. They manipulate you. They slander you. They lie to you or about you to other people. Then it gets a lot harder. It's it really hard. I mean, forgiveness is one of the hardest things in the Bible, one of the hardest teachings. And yet Jesus here is saying it's, it's a non-negotiable. And I'll tell you, as I was writing the sermon, my wife can testify, I had like seven pages of forgiveness, and I was like, I don't think I'm going to be able to cover all of that, so I'll do my best. But forgiveness, forgiveness doesn't mean that, that we instantly feel better, and forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. Reconciliation takes two people, and reconciliation is the goal. We won't always hit that goal in this life, but forgiveness only takes one person. It's releasing the person from their debt to you, from the sin they committed against you. It's not holding it against them. It's not talking about it, and it's not bringing it up anymore. And this is just really, really hard for us. I think it's especially hard for us, maybe harder for us than it's ever been. I don't know. I'm sure it's always been hard. But it's really hard for us because we live in a day where everything, number one, everything's disposable, from our cars to our cell phones to our toasters. 
Like if your toaster breaks down, I'm sure there are six of you in the room who will get excited to bring it to your workbench and fix it. Everyone else is going to go on Amazon and pay $13 and get their new toaster in a day. Like we live in a culture where we just throw stuff away. We do that with relationships too. I think another reason this is hard is we live, like I said, in this culture that, that celebrates and fosters a real narcissism, uh, you know, where it's all about you and it's all about self-care and it's about shutting out the haters. And I mean, we like to take people down online and rub their noses and their mistakes. And if anyone ever hurts you, you now have the opportunity, especially like if you you catch it like on tape or in a picture or whatever, you can post it for the world to see and then everyone can pile on and make the person feel even worse than maybe they already do and remind them of how awful they are. Like we, we're in a culture that if you're like, I'm never talking to them again and I'm actually going to just tear them down, you will have plenty of people who cheer you on in that. And then lastly... We live, as I've said, in a highly affluent and a mobile culture. It's never been easier to cut off relationships. I mean, 200 years ago, if you lived in a village of 23 people and there were two donkeys that you shared, you know, to make a two-mile journey, if you got in a fight with your neighbor, you didn't really have much of an option but to actually have to deal with that eventually. Here, someone hurts you, someone burns you or wrongs you, I'll never go to that restaurant again, and I'll tell everyone about why I'm never going there again. I'm never going to that church again. I'm never going to that community group again. I'm going to block them on social media. I'll block their email. I'll erase their number from my phone, and I will probably never have to see them ever again. And what we do, one author said that for us in our day, the nuclear options become the first option. What this does for us is it it leads to this deeply fragmented society where everyone's alone. And I don't know if you paid attention to the news. There's been articles in the last few weeks about how loneliness is now a national epidemic. It's one of the greatest health crises, crises facing our society. It's because we actually don't know how to mend relationships. We don't know how to forgive. I'll tell you, as a pastor... 10 years, more than that, 12 or 13 years, I've seen few things destroy relationships, communities, and even people's lives like an unwillingness to forgive. You have two friends. One friend hurts the other. Lines drawn. The hurt friend, if they refuse to forgive, they're going to talk to other people. And I'm sure this is not you. It's this is people who used to come here. They don't come here anymore. You guys aren't like this. But they'll talk to other people. Can you believe they did this to me? I can't believe it. That's so wrong. The person over here will start to defend themselves. Well, this is what happened, and they won't even forgive me. And what happens is a line's drawn, and sides are taken. And before you know it, you have brothers and sisters in the family of God cannibalizing themselves. And Jesus is saying, in the family of God, God is our father, Jesus is our brother, and us, as brothers and sisters, we don't have the right to kick people out of the family. And then commanding us to forgive, to be clear, Jesus is not saying that the hurt we've experienced is inconsequential. It's a real debt. Rather, Jesus is refusing to let 
He refuses to let sin have the last word in our relationships. One pastor wrote this. He said, in commanding us to forgive, Jesus is not producing a race of doormats, a new set of victims who, having been slapped on the right cheek, offer the left as well so that they might be twice victimized. Jesus has no interest in producing victims. The world produces enough. Rather, in commanding us to forgive, Jesus is inviting us to take charge, to turn the world around, to throw a monkey wrench in the eternal wheel of retribution and vengeance. We don't have to silently suffer the hurt to lick our wounds, lying in wait for the day when we shall at last be able to return the blow that was dealt to us. We can take charge, turn things around, be victors rather than victims. We can forgive. Forgiveness matters, not just for our relationship, but for Jesus. He's saying, in my kingdom, it's going to be different. In my family, it's going to be different. And again, the secret here, the way you grow in being a person of forgiveness, it's the same way you be a person who grows in generosity. It's when you recognize everything's a gift. See, all too often, I think that we think what should motivate our forgiveness is compassion for others. Well, I know their story. I know what they've gone through. So now I feel bad. And it's great if you can. But compassion's not, it won't always lead to forgiveness because sometimes you're not going to feel compassion on people. What actually fuels our forgiveness is gratitude. We forgive because God first forgave us. We pray, forgive us our sins. And then we talk about forgiving other people their sins. It's gratitude that leads to forgiveness. And that gratitude only comes when you recognize that everything's a gift. So there are very two simple requests, bread and forgiveness. But to pray them challenges some of the foundational truths that we cling to. It challenges the individualism of our day. It challenges the grandiosity reminds us that we're creatures and we're sinners, but we're also sons and daughters in God's family. And I just wonder how different our church would look if we learned to pray us instead of I, or our instead of my. If we learned to bring not just my needs or your needs, but our needs to God. And so in this year of prayer, that's one of the things we're hoping we do. We actually grow in praying together, but that's hard. Sometimes you don't know how to pray for people. And we announced a couple of weeks ago that we created a prayer room. It's behind this auditorium. It's upstairs in the loft. And in that prayer room, one of the things we're trying to do to help us grow in praying for each other, we, we have what we're calling the prayer wall. It's a really long wall. We call it the asked and answered wall. And on one half of the wall is the word asked. And on the other half is the word answered. And then we have Sticky notes, small, medium, large, and we have Sharpies. And what we want to encourage you to do is needs you have, things you want people to pray for you for. You write it on the sticky note. You can put your name. You don't have to put your name. You can go into a lot of detail. You can leave it more generic. Whatever you want, you write your prayer request, and then you slap it on the wall. And my prayer is that we have hundreds, if not thousands, of prayer requests on that wall. The wall's big enough. They might overlap, but it's big enough. And then, if you want, you can actually go and pray for each other. We as your pastors will pray for you. 
as members, we can carry each other's burdens. And then when God answers those prayers, you can go back up there. You can take it off the ask part, and you can move it over to the answered part. And we can celebrate and be reminded that our God is eager and gracious to hear our prayers and that God meets our every need. And so if you're unemployed, if you're praying for a child, if you're praying for your health or the health of a friend, if you're overwhelmed, whatever it is, I want to encourage you to go up there and put it on the wall. Let's learn to grow and pray together. So we move to the Lord's table. It's here where these two requests meet, right? It's here where we celebrate that God, he doesn't just give us physical bread, but in Christ, he gives us spiritual bread. It's the bread which enables us to receive forgiveness and to live lives at peace with God. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, when you come to this table, I pray that a few things in life, I think, have the power to teach us that everything is a gift like coming to the Lord's table. It's where we're reminded that God loved us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. He's met our every need. And as we feast on this, it should lead us and it should fuel us to be a people who go and live lives in line with his kingdom. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, we encourage you to take part in this meal. If you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ who gave his life for you. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.